welcome to Oral Fixation, the podcast where me and my good Judy, Andy, take an album that means a little something to the queer community and discuss the music and its impact. This episode, we discuss Judy at Carnegie Hall by Judy Garland, which was released by Capitol in 1961. Clang, clang, clang went the trolley and ding, ding, ding went the bell doll because every single audio sample that you hear in this episode is used solely for the purposes of review and critique. We hope that you enjoyed the episode. So Alex, I just actually want to say first and foremost, thanks so much for joining us with relatively low kind of, I guess, oversight on the podcast and also I think we've met each other maybe once before um so for the listeners sake Alex is a good friend of my housemate slash sister-in-law deep deep sister-in-law of the pod Liv um and I think I actually met you at Tim my brother-in-law's 30th birthday which was Elton John themed and I believe that you came outfitless I was addressed as an Elton because it was very last minute, but I had this like floor length leather studded jacket on with big blue diamante glasses. I looked fabulous. I thought that was just your look. I thought that your look was very much Matrix meets the 70s. It definitely could be. (laughs) (laughs) It's queer. Well, it sounds queer anyway. It sounds queer. So you've qualified for all fixation. It's great to have you here. (laughs) I think that Andy and I have been talking about covering Judy Garland ever since this podcast began because she is... Ever since we were born. Ever since we were born. Ever since we even knew what podcasting was. Because Judy Garland, and we'll get into it, but she is the original gay icon, right? Like, she's kind of the... The, the benchmark for modern gay iconery. Ground zero. She's ground zero for modern mm. gay iconery. Um, Definitely. But I knew that we needed someone that was really gonna, not school us, but be a really, really um, informed part of the conversation. And Liv, a few weeks ago, just said, oh my God, you should get Alex on to talk about Judy because he just absolutely loves her. He loves her music. He loves that era. He feels like he was born in the wrong decade. And I was like, oh my God, get him on. Tick, 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 boom. Tick, tick, tick. She got it. (laughs) Absolutely right. Yeah. So what is it about Judy that really kind of spoke to you? Because as I understand it, you were a big fan of her ever since you were little. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And every Judy fan, I think, kind of has the same origin story. I mean, it all always all starts with The Wizard of Oz, which I find so fascinating. What's that, Alex? I haven't heard of that film. How Is that a you? sort of Get arty <laughs> art house? Yes. Yes. Yeah, Independent yet movie. To come out. <laughs> <laughs> My mother is a saint, right? She, she raised me on all the old MGM musicals. So Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly, Ginger Rogers, Lena Horne. These were my teachers. And Judy was it. I remember when I was, it would have been before I went to primary school, so it must have been four or five, watching Easter Parade, which is still one of my favorite. I mean, they're all my favorites, but still one of my favorite Judy Garland films. It's such a fluffy, silly 
movie. It has absolutely no substance, but apparently there was a, a gap in the market for Easter themed movies and MGM filled, uh, filled it. <laughs> so I was um, watching this movie as a kid and Judy Garland is supposed to be this um, girl next door, right? Very bland, very beige. Her name is Hannah Brown. <laughs> that tells you all you need to know. Um, and there's this wonderful scene where she and Fred Astaire are walking along um, a Manhattan street and they're talking about her sex appeal and how she has none, right? And he says, well, do men ever turn around and look at you on the street? She says, I don't know, I never turn around and look at them. And he says, well, let's try it. So she takes a couple of steps forward and we're watching her and she's trying to be sexy and gorgeous and none of the men are interested, right? And then we go back to Fred and he is, he's watching her and suddenly we see this quizzical look on his face as all these men start turning their head and looking at her. And then we cut back to Judy and she's pulling this ridiculously silly face, right? Making herself look as ugly as possible for Judy and by MGM standards. And in this moment, I remember, like, it's just kind of crystallized. In this moment, I remember falling in love with her. And I didn't know why then, but now I do, right? It was that, that ability to make fun of herself and make fun of the fact that she doesn't and never, never did and never will kind of fit into the mold. You know, she never did at MGM. She never did um, in a concert career and TV and anywhere, right? Um, and it, it, it just, it's always kind of sat inside my heart, this moment, um, where she was self-deprecating. And that kind of framed her, her career. And if that isn't the camp experience, I don't know what is, right? <laughs> because we're always, you know, we're, we're, we're always kind of put in a box or, um, you know, told to act in a certain way. And growing up as a little flamboyant gay kid in a very, very conservative area, I used humour and that self-deprecating humour to, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of little queer kids did. That's so beautiful, Alex. Um, and actually just on that, like what, like where, where are you from? What's a little bit about you? Where are you from? And, and, and like, what do you do now? Yeah. So I, I grew up, grew up in the Sutherland Shire. So I'm throwing them under the bus, very conservative. <laughs> um, I'm back there at the moment spending my lockdown here, which is lovely and terrifying at the same time. Um, I escaped, you know, to the big smoke as soon as possible and I think fell beautifully into theatre. Um, so I kind of live a double life. By day, I'm the education manager at Monkey Bar Theatre Company. Um, and by night, I am a theatre director. I co-founded a little theatre company about five years ago called Little Triangle. Um, and we present rarely performed um, unconventional, weird, wacky musicals and cabaret that no one thinks they want to see, but they really do. <laughs> Sounds gay. I'm in. <laughs> and this, and like barely knowing you, I've literally spent five minutes in your company, but um, the way that you just described 
that first experience of seeing Judy on the screen and then growing older and putting the pieces together and, oh, it all kind of makes sense now. Um, Listeners, I don't know if it was coming through in Alex's voice, but you were beaming with the biggest smile. And all I saw there was pure gay joy. It was like, it was just emanating. And I'm so excited to talk about, like Drew said, someone who we've been talking about since the beginning of Oral Fixation, the day dot of gay icons, of queer icons, with someone who knows and loves Judy Garland so much. So I'm so ready for this episode. Me too. (laughs) Me too. I mean, I feel bad because my knowledge of Judy is, like, I didn't even, please don't shoot me, Alex, but I didn't even, I don't think I'd even heard of Easter Parade as, like, a film. I definitely obviously knew Wizard of Oz, which as well, I'm sure we'll reference this later on, but it's kind of a very queer narrative in itself of kind of, you know, realizing all along that you had the power within you to to get everything that you've dreamed of. And so there's that sort of like that, that relationship between Judy and the Wizard of Oz and sort of the queerness around that has always been something that's been sort of relatively known to me. And then I guess Meet Me in St. Louis, Louis is like, I know the like clang, clang, clang went the trolley song. And I knew about Liza and we'd obviously researched her a bit doing the Liza episode. But this, in, in, in particular, this Carnegie Hall performance, this album that we are sort of discussing, I had heard of it as this sort of like this mythical night that's meant to be sort of one of the most magical moments in show business history. But I'd never really sat down and, and listened to the album or sort of engaged with it from the beginning to the end. And it's been such a cool, weird, at some points kind of sad, but also triumphant experience to listen to the whole kind of, I think it's over two hours, the album. And you get everything. You get her going off to get water. You get the guy saying, okay, we're going to take a break now. And then her three or four or five encores and you you get everything in between. It's the whole show. And um yeah, it's been, it, it's it's unlike an album. I think the, the closest album we've probably ever covered is the Liza um, Live at Radio City Music Hall album. But this, even this be hitting a bit different. So I'm just so excited to get into it. I think this is the oldest album that we've covered on Aura Fixation. And it's kind of like your era, isn't it, Drew? This would have come out like when you were just kind of hitting your stride. Pre-Stonewall. Pre- we are discussing a pre-Stonewall icon tonight. Yeah, well, who, you know what? Who really threw the first brick? Yeah, bitch? right. Because, you know, as we know, I was there. Yeah, um, I was just about to, I think my 50th was approaching and I was, there was, there was heat in the air. You just got Concord from Hayward's Heath. And-, <laughs> <laughs> and there's a there's a Judy Garland connection there as well. Yes. Her funeral was on the same day as the Stonewall. Mm. Yeah. Riots. Well, yeah, and yeah. and rumor does have it, right? That mm. that perhaps that wasn't the only reason that um the riots sparked, but that could have been a There was something factor. in the air. Mm. Something in the air that mm, night, but kind of Andy, an urban, urban myth. What? How did you know much about Judy pre this? Um, well, I remember, of course, um, the Wizard of Oz always being in the ether. And when I was about twenty-two, when I just arrived in Australia and I was doing like my farm work to scramble for my second year visa, I had a lot of alone time, and I remember sitting down to watch. The Wizard of Oz as an adult, because obviously, you know, the references, you grew up with the references, RuPaul's always crapping on about it. And I thought, I want to watch this through an adult lens. And I loved it. Um, But this album specifically, 
I have quite a complex relationship with um, a man known as uh, Rufus Wainwright. Um, I've always wanted to explore Rufus more, but as you'll have heard in one of our earlier episodes, it, we have a bit of a roller coaster. There's some highs, but it's mostly lows. Anyway, this isn't about Rufus. He's but fine with you. He's fine with me. He loves me. Um, he, of course, aside from being a hugely talented artist himself, he is an enormous fan of people like Judy Garland. He's, an, he's a Judy stan. And, of course, in the 2000s, he recreated this concert completely by himself. He put it on in New York, he recorded it. Every single track that Judy did, he did. I think he only did one more. Um, and regardless of what I personally think about Rufus, I just think that is the height of queer stannery. That's someone who has the talent to emulate their idol and play that, and pay that incredible level of tribute. I just thought that was really fucking cool. Then, um, so that led me to listen to this album. And I think when I did, you know, I probably wasn't really very open to receiving, um, you know, the music that we're, that she sings is, is pre-Beatles. It's pre the classic pop um, song construction that we know and love. These are, this is the American songbook. These are big um, musical numbers, um, bold, brassy, and my ear just wasn't, um, you know, it just wasn't picking up those kind of melodies. I, I just, I just put it aside. But there were two songs which really stuck out to me on that first listen round, and it was um, "Zingo's the Strings of My Heart," which I just love straight away. Um, but of course, not to dwell on it so early in, but specifically in um, "Over the Rainbow." Of course, I went to that song, but the cr the crackle in her voice when she sings the first um, "Rainbow." Even then, I was like, holy shit, there is some, like, fragile vulnerability strength going on here, which is kind of, is this the key to, like, why she is that, I that idol, that icon? Is it that I could just hear that raw vulnerability even then? Um, so that always stood out to me. And then I, d I haven't really listened to the album again until, you know... Um now and until the last week so like drew said it's been an absolute pleasure to listen to it start to finish with a kind of more receptive frame of mind that moment you describe in over the rainbow i i, I can never tell whether it's her heartbreaking or mine <laughs> you know it's so connected and i think that i think we'll talk more about this as well i think that she in such a beautiful, loving way, opens up her arms and invites you into her world in this in this album. Unlike any other live album I've ever listened to, and, and including her live albums as well. And I think that it's so interesting, Drew, that you mentioned that you hear on the recording everything as well as the songs. Like you hear the stage weights and you hear her, you know, shuffling through music and moving a chair and making these funny little comments. And it, it feels to me like we're sitting in, you know, her sunken living room and she, someone asks her to sing and she gets up at the piano and just sings for two and a half hours. You know, it doesn't feel like it's on the stage of Carnegie Hall with, you know, 20 plus piece orchestra it feels so intimate yet so big and brass uh, brassy and I don't, I don't know it's it's really amazing to me 
Alex, are you able to, without putting you on the spot too much, <clears throat> are you able to kind of provide a bit of context for the sort of era in Judy's career in which this performance kind of came about? Definitely. It's a really interesting um, time in Judy Garland's life because not only was her career in a real bad state um, in the early 1950s, I mean, she'd just been um, uh, fired from MGM. Um, she was fired on in the middle of making three movies, Annie Get Your Gun um, and two others. And did they finish the films with her or with someone else? No, they finished them without her. Yeah. Um, wow. And and they're terrific films. I'm trying to think of the the other two. And they would have been, oh, um, The Barclays of Broadway, which ended up being Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire. And another Fred Astaire film, which I cannot remember the name of, of Royal Wedding. In 1950, I think, they, they fired her. And she, she was in a career slump. Um... And then she met Sid Luft, uh, Lorna Luft's dad, um, who ended up being her producer and then husband. Um, and he, well, together they resurrected her career um, and she became a concert performer. Um, you know, she went back to vaudeville, which is where she started her career as a, as a child. Um, and for the next 10 years, that's where she existed. And... It wasn't until 1961 with the Carnegie Hall concert that she was back on top again. Um, it took a really long time for her to find her groove and to find the... I mean, she was always reinventing herself. And I think that's what we also love about our gay icons, right? Um, it's, it's the reinvention. And it took her a long time to really get to the perfect... Judy Garland, and it's the 1960s Judy that is, well, I mean, that's the one I love. <laughs> there are so many of them. Um, they called her the comeback kid, actually, because she made so many comebacks. And just before um, the Carnegie Hall concert, or the, the tour that ended at Carnegie Hall, she had been incredibly sick. She had hepatitis, um, and she was told... Um, by the doctor that she would be a permanent uh, semi-invalid and that she would never work again. And that was a couple of years before um, Carnegie Hall. And she, she, you know, said, fuck that and, and did it, you know, she, she proved everyone wrong. And I think that is really the legacy of Judy Garland is that she proves people wrong. She proved the movie industry wrong, she proved the press wrong, and the fans always kind of stuck by her and knew, you know, that she could do it. Um, so I, 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 I've forgotten the question because I'm just rambling on about Judy, as I'm always doing. <laughs> well, no, 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 I love it, I love it. It's so funny that you sort of mention both, I guess, her kind of being that comeback kid and reinventing herself and that being a thing that we as as queer people really gravitate to. But then also I just, I really felt in listening to this that her kind of patter was so self-deprecating in a way that was 
you know, she'd talk about how she she went to London recently and there was this journalist that was like, oh, you just look so great, you look so great. And they and she was like, oh my God, I love you. Keep, you know, tell me more, tell me more. She gave her a ride back to her hotel. And, I, the and dropped her. So I picked up the paper uh, the next morning to her column and her she had a whole page and the uh, the headline said uh, Judy Garland arrives in London and she's not chubby and she's not plump she's fat <laughs> a terrible girl so. she kind of like makes herself the butt of the joke so that others don't do it to her and that really kind of resonated with me. Nowadays, that's quite a kind of common trope with comedians is that, you know, you sort of, you own the way that people laugh at you because that gives you power. But back then, that probably wasn't as as sort of known a thing. And it kind of struck a bit of a chord with me when I sort of heard her making jokes at her own expense because they they were funny. And, you know, I've, I've, I do that all the time. You know, it's a very kind of, I think, um, queer thing in learning the power of kind of, making, controlling the way others kind of laugh at you in a way that sort of you, they're laughing because you're funny rather than they're laughing at you because there's something, you know, inherently wrong about you. But it it was also kind of a bit, I don't know, sad to me because I didn't like to hear her talking about herself with such kind of disdain. But I think that that's sort of, you know, that plays also into that, that vulnerability and probably why this has now this 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 performance has that status of being one of those really kind of you know electric nights in show business because i'm imagining not many performers had really done that before certainly kind of to that scale or a, a sort of yeah a performer t- with the notoriety that judy had i think it's so interesting that you talk about her humor because it's something that not many people know about she was incredibly funny as a person, but also in interviews and on stage. And she definitely did use humour um, to kind of poke fun at at society and, the, and the, the things that people were saying about her. I mean, if you pick up a newspaper from the time, um, it's just full of tragic, tragic stories about Judy. And none of them are true. And it's so interesting that you referenced her um the story she told in the concert because they're made up as well (laughs) she was just a fabulous storyteller and everything was improvised and it it gives that um that element again that the feeling of being at a intimate party with judy where she's she's you know taking the the center of it she's you know the center of attention and she's just telling these wild wild stories i mean liza minnelli said years later in an interview that, you know, Judy Garland made up everything she ever said. And if you go back and watch some of the interviews that uh, Judy gave... Um, Liza's want to talk. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. That's exactly it. Um, there's a fantastic example. The Jack Parr interviews are legendary amongst Judy Garland fans. Um, and she tells these wonderful stories about... Um, you know, days on the MGM lot um, and how Elizabeth Taylor was always surrounded by chipmunks and animals. And, um, you know, she tells another story about how at a party with Noel Coward and Marlena Dietrich and Marlena turns up with a record 
that is just applause. And, and she says, oh, can I play you my new record? And they listen to two sides of, you know, <laughs> applause from different countries that Marlena has uh, received. And, and it's all totally made up, but the audience, the fans are in on the joke. And I think that's the beauty of her. And that is, to me, why she's a queer icon, because we know the truth. You know, everyone calls her tragic and sad, but we know that she is so funny and um, bright um, and a survivor. It's It was kind of the journey I found myself going on with learning more and more about her um, in that you go into Judy believing that she's tragic because that's what we're told. And there's elements of, um, of that tragedy which maybe as queer people we do gravitate to as well because, because, full stop. Um, but when you come out the other end and you realise that well, actually, she wasn't that tragic. People kept saying she was tragic and she was like, well, I don't feel very tragic. Not only that, but, you know, she actually, you know, both herself and her daughter, Lorna, have said, you know, she actually just really disliked this tragic trope, but then towards the end of her life, even used it to her advantage and lent into it exactly like you just said, Alex. It is actually kind of looking through the looking glass um, that she just took this label that people kept putting on her where she's like, it's actually not that true, and then used it to her own advantage. Um, what I wanted to ask you, Alex, about the track list of this, am I correct in thinking that this, the track, the set list, sorry, was put together as a bit of like a career retrospective because obviously we know certain songs, but the vast majority of these songs I'd never heard of. Um, and I'm assuming they've come from musicals that she was in or things associated with her. That is so interesting because it's actually the opposite. Um, the story goes that after her time in hospital, a couple of months later, she was in the shower and, you know, with all the steam and she started singing and she, she felt like she'd never sung so well in her life and she kind of ran into the bedroom and um, told Sid, her husband at the time, that she had the 30-track list um, for, her, for her next concert, right? She just came up with all these songs on the spot. And the... The songs that she chose weren't her songs. There's, I think, four or five from her films, but the rest are taken from early musical comedy or vaudeville, um, taken from MGM musicals that she wasn't in. A lot of them are actually songs that were written for male voices as well. Which this I is queer. So... It's so queer. <laughs> Well, that is a that's a big thing that I noticed. Like there were, there's I think there's a medley that she does towards the end, and one of the songs in there is "Me and My Gal," and she's like singing about her gal, and I'm like, oh, that's right. Like, weren't there rumors that Judy was maybe a bit gay? Yes, yes. I mean, those rumors have been circulating for years and years and years and years, and it's the kind of thing that. As you mentioned before, these the, the, the life of tragedy, she really did ham up because audiences loved it. And at the end of the day, she was a hoofer. She was a vaudevillian. She wanted to make an audience happy. So if an audience wanted to see her, you know, dressed up as a little tramp and dangle her feet over, you know, the side of the stage and 
crack through over the rainbow. She was going to give it to them. Um, she was so, uh, she just served the audience, which I think is just so wonderful. And you can tell they are just lapping it up. I just imagine that it's just all gay boys in the audience. Oh, yes. Yeah. Full, full. I was reading um, uh, this, I can't remember where it was from, um, but it was this old text um, about one of her old uh, previous concerts. I think it was at the Palace. And it's this conversation between two straight married men about how many gay men there were at this concert. And one guy goes to the other, oh, no one's going to the men's room tonight. It's really gross and weird, but also a great little snapshot of the audience that, (laughs) you know. I'm like, uh, hey, visibility, 1967, love it. Um, I I think it's from Time Magazine, Alex, because I wrote this down earlier from something I just found that um, the journalist disparagingly noted that a disproportionate part of her nightly clack seems to be homosexual. And apparently Time Magazine at that time, not just when talking about Judy's audience, but would often use the euphemism, the boys in the tight trousers about gay people. And I actually stand that. When I read that, I was like, I love that. That Some kind of like straight male journalist would be writing this like disparaging insult about these queens. And I'm like, yes to all of you queens. And you can actually, I swear, I could hear the queens in the audience, in Mm. the claps, the cheers, the yasses. There was something where she was like, oh, aren't you? Do you really want more? Aren't you tired? And there's just this... Aren't you tired? Of it? I felt like I was at, you know, that that is like a Gaga concert in 1961. Like she was giving the gays what they wanted, and I think there was another line where. Um, I was what you were saying earlier, Drew, about that um, London journalist. When she starts that anecdote, she says. Um, she talks about returning from London and, and just one solitary queen yells, welcome back. <laughs> it was, I, I was there with those boys. I was there with them. Oh, it's absolutely electrifying, I think. And the, the applause is almost as exciting as the, the songs. You know, it, 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 you do feel like you are totally immersed in the atmosphere. There was another um, review I read from... Um, Life magazine in 1961, and the writer describes it as a tribal celebration, which I think is such an interesting way, it's such a fascinating way to describe a night at Carnegie Hall, which is, you know, a, a classical music hall, you know? I love that. Worship. Queero worship. Yes. Yeah, that's it. You know, and, and I, some of my favourite parts of the recording uh, when the audience calls out and she responds to them. It's so heartwarming and so beautiful how much love and care she has for the audience. You know, late, later in the recording, um, when she says something like, you know, she, they're out of out of songs and someone just calls out, just stand there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, and that would be enough. <laughs> just stand there. <laughs> Can I ask a question, Alex? So, you know, obviously she's got this like vaudevillian um, history and that's very much kind of her performance style. There are certain parts in this performance where she does things like forget her lyrics or goes off, as I said, mentioned earlier, goes off and sort of grabs a, <laughs> a glass of water and says, just talk amongst yourselves for a bit. Is that her like 
<laughs> is that her playing with the audience or was she a bit was she a bit all over the place? Oh, no, she knew exactly what she was doing. So she um, also performed a lot of this set in Holland. Um, and these stories and the, the forgetting of the lyrics appear there again, <gasps> right? So it's, it's, it's absolutely all planned and <laughs> she knows exactly what she's doing. It's, it's none of it's a mistake, but it feels like it, doesn't it? It really feels like it's all off the cuff. As we know, Judy did have, we have to acknowledge the fact that she had a complicated relationship with, with substances and, and that sort of led to her um, untimely um, passing. And I guess as I, when I heard stuff like that, if I was in the audience, front row, screaming for her to read me the phone book, I probably would have just like eaten it up. But listening to it, after the fact, knowing what I know now, I kind of, I guess, channeled it through a lens in my mind where I was like, oh God, she's kind of like, um, she's kind of lost it a bit. She, you know, she talks a lot about how she just can't stop sweating. And I was just like, oh God, bless her. She's obviously just like a bit gone. But now learning from, from you that it's, that's her kind of rapport with the audience and that she's kind of, I imagine that as she's saying all this stuff, her there's a bit of a sort of, you know, raise in her eyebrow or a bit of a wink to the audience that kind of, I guess, recontextualizes it. And it's going to be really interesting to re-listen to this album now, knowing that she was kind of playing with them and having fun with them. Yeah, because that was her, um, that was her image, you know, she, and she's doing that thing again, where she is taking ownership of the way people spoke about her and the way she was spoken about in the press as this kind of, monstrous um nightmare of a a diva right um so she's just kind of turning it on the you know on its head and presenting it as a joke (laughs) which is what she was so 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 good at um really reframing the the argument against her alex just for listeners who don't know because i um I'm still no expert, but I didn't really know any anything about her early life until I saw the Rene Zellweger bio, biopic a few years ago, which I iconically took a sick day off work to just have a day for me. And I remember walking to the <laughs> cinema in Newtown and just getting a big bag of lollies and sitting in the cinema and watching uh, Rene Zellweger play Judy Garland, two iconic comebacks on the screen. That film taught me a lot about her childhood, but I was just wondering if you could maybe, again, not to put you on the spot like earlier, but give a bit of a summary for those who have literally no idea, you know, what kind of led to what we just kind of hinted at with the substance relationship. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I I will admit I haven't seen that movie yet. I can't bring I'm gagged. Um, <laughs> Why haven't you seen it? I, I, I just, I know, I know I should, but I just, I, I can't. There's some block. I can see me. why you wouldn't though. If she's like your ultimate number one, I can understand why you haven't yet. But yeah. And no one, no one has played Judy Garland better than Judy Davis in Me and My Shadows. Oh, um, queen. If you're for a good biofilm, that is top notch. Very, very good. Um, but no, to, to answer your question... Um, I'll be very, very, very brief, but, um, as I mentioned, she started her career in vaudeville, um, performing with her two sisters. She had a 
stage mother from hell. She would rival, you know, Mama Rose. Um, and they had a very rocky relationship for the rest of um, her mother's life. Um, she auditioned for um, MGM for Metro Goldwyn Mayer quite early, um, I would say pre teens. And funnily enough, she sang um, Zing Went the Strings of My Heart. So it's, a, it's an interesting um, little thing, you know, little tidbit bringing that back now after all these years. Um, and once she started at Metro, I mean, they didn't know what to do with her for a long time. She, um, you know, she, she sang on the radio and things like that, but they just didn't know what kind of films to put her in because she was kind of that in-between. She wasn't Shirley Temple and she wasn't, you know, Lana Turner. She was just odd, you know, and um, Louis V. Mayer, who was awful, who ran the studio, used to call her um, his little hunchback um, or little ugly duckling and things like that. So they, were just, they were just awful. Fucking hell, because you, you watch Wizard of Oz and you're like, she is like a porcelain doll. She's so... Just beautiful. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. But they wanted Shirley Temple for that um, originally, which would have would have just changed history, I think. I mean, imagine Shirley Temple singing Over the Rainbow. We wouldn't, it wouldn't happen. Um, but, yeah, and then, you know, she made film after film after film after film um, where she played a child, essentially. She was always the girl next door. She never... She rarely got the boy... Um, and she was kind of the butt of the joke with a big singing voice. Um, and it wasn't until she met, uh, Vincent Minnelli, Liza's dad, who was a, a wildly talented director. Um, some of his films, I think, are the best movie musicals that have ever been made. I mean, Meet Me in St. Louis, um, Gigi, uh, the, the list goes on. They're just such... An American in Paris must watch. They're so beautiful and bright and rich. He had such a great eye. He um, cast her and directed her in Meet Me St. Louis. And if you watch the film, um, especially in context of her other films, she's finally an adult. She's finally beautiful. Um, she is given the kind of glamorous star treatment that every other you know, starlet at um, MGM was given. Um, and then she started making more grown-up films uh, like uh, Easter Parade and, and Summer Stock. Um, and she was she was really on a roll, but also uh, had been, you know, on uppers and downers um, since she was, you know, since before she was a teenager. Um, and she lived life so just so fast, you know, she was married, um, you know, she, she was onto her second husband by 23, um, and fired from MGM at 28, you know, um, and she'd made 30 films. <laughs> so it, it, there was just no slowing down. And then her body just gave out. Um, and she had to, she had to rest. And that's, you know, we, we made it to 1950 where she was in that slump, as I mentioned earlier, um, and had to rebuild her career again and again and again and again and again until Carnegie Hall. And then she rebuilt it again and became a TV star and, yeah. 
so on. And that kind of bridges um, that that the origin years up until what what I couldn't get over with. Um, my preconceptions of where Judy was at with Carnegie Hall was I thought I was listening to um, the concert of someone in their mid to late 50s. Um, but correct me if I'm wrong, Alex, but I think she was actually just 39 when she recorded this concert. She died at like maybe 47 a few years later. Um, and, and, you know, whatever, like you say, she lived life fast. So it's no surprise that she takes on that maturity and um, kind of a life well lived in her voice, which we actually love because it brings so much texture and nuance to to the singing. But I couldn't help. I, I was shocked when I saw that she was actually just 39, because to me, that's so young still and so much more life to live. And she really had crammed decades of living into such a shorter amount of time through her choice or maybe not through her choice. Well, yeah, that that's the thing. I mean, it's, there's, there's so much to it and I don't think we'll ever get to the bottom of the, the real problems and, and challenges that Judy Garland faced. I mean, you know, a lot of, a lot of Judy Garland fans, you know, like to ignore or not focus on the, the drinking and the drugs and, the, the wild life that she led, you know, outside of her on stage and on screen career, but it exists. And I, and I think that it's, it's a bit ridiculous to kind of idolize her in that way and not, um, acknowledge it, you know, because I mean, that's, that's why we love these icons, right? I mean, you look at Liza, you know, she's, she's the same. Um, the, what they achieved, um, on stage and on screen while absolutely ruining their lives and health off stage and off screen is just insane. It's amazing. It was kind of wild for me to listen to, because that, of course, I did do, a, you just naturally do a bit of comparing. And it's so funny to me how if you compare Judy Garland's singing voice from when she's younger to how it is in the Carnegie Hall recording, there's, there's a, there is a little bit more of a kind of like, I would say slur to it, probably because of the, the reasons we've just discussed. And it's so interesting to me that I kind of found myself asking myself, is Liza's voice like, like that? Because she kind of mimicked her mum how her mum sang later in life with a bit of a slur. I mean, I know that also Liza had her, um, as you mentioned, Alex, had her um, relationship with substances as well. But it it was so, yeah, it was kind of a really weird, like, mindfuck for me to think that Liza's voice is, kind of has always been a bit, for want of a better phrase, slurry. Um, and wondering if the, if that's how she just sort of learned how to sing from her mum and sort of just mimicked that. And then it just became how her voice is. Yeah, it's so interesting because Liza spent her entire career trying not to be her mother. And she really resented the the comparison. Um, and to the degree, degree that she rarely spoke about her mother. Um, she talks a lot about her dad, about Vincent Minnelli, and even dedicates a, a concert to him, which is a fantastic concert. Um, but you you can't as you said you can't help but make the comparison i mean they have such a similar sound such a similar um 
timber to their to their voices and the progression is so similar as well um you know judy and liza both had real crisp clean sounds and then as they as they got older and a little bit wilder their voices did start to decay i mean you can hear so much vocal damage in judy garland's voice especially in the um the carnegie hall concert i mean 10 years earlier if you listen to maybe not 10 but a couple of years earlier if you listen to her concert at the palace her voice is in much 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 better shape but the evening doesn't have the same raw uh kinetic energy that carnegie has i think that the beauty of carnegie hall is that anything could happen at any moment you know the next note could be a total bust or it could blow the roof off off the hall um and whenever i listen to it i'm on the edge of my seat and i know i mean i've been listening to this album <laughs> for you know all 30 years of my life um but i i i'm i'm still surprised um at some of the notes that come out and and some of the flubs she makes and the things that don't sound very nice but it it doesn't matter it's all part of the the experience that you know it it's it's just wonderful this is a really good segue into talking about the we referenced it earlier but the the somewhere over the rainbow performance which of course she saves till pretty much the end before the um the barrage of encores come and when i was listening to that when it started i was like okay here we go bitch let's do this let's strap in i wonder what it's like and yeah it's that first rainbow where her voice breaks i i shit you not i audibly gasped i was like oh no because it's just so like you just feel that breaking that voice breaking i think what you said earlier alex was so beautiful when you said you you still don't know whether it's her heart breaking or yours and it, you really you feel that crack you feel it but it's worth mentioning that she goes on and look she's never going to hit the notes like she did when she was in her um 20s or sort of early 30s but she does end it triumphantly. The end of the, that performance is triumphant and you can just feel the the electricity from the audience and the kind of like almost the um, the, the, the disbelief that from her that she's like, oh my God, I actually, I did kind of manage to, to hit those notes in the end. And um, yeah, it's just, it is the full, you just run the full gamut of emotions. Oh, I was just gonna say, I think it's so funny that you mentioned um, her disbelief because she was notoriously um, scared of, of everything. Um, performing terrified her, being in front of a camera terrified her, being on TV absolutely terrified her and she missed so many performances because of it and there were so many people wondering whether or not she would make this performance um, and you know she thought that people were there I mean, you know, this, the audience was full of her peers. It wasn't just her fans. It was, you know, uh, Julie Andrews and Carol Channing and Lauren Bacall. It was, everyone was there, Rock Hudson. Um, and, you know, she thought they were there to see her fall on her face, right? But when you spend that two and a half hours with her and you make it all the way to Chicago, there is so much triumph in 
her voice and in the room because you feel like you're always on that um, roller coaster, right? Of it could it goes up and down and up and down and up and down, and she might not make it. Oh, she made it. Oh, that was fantastic. Well, that wasn't so good, but she makes it by the end, and it's just magic. I mean, it it it's no surprise to me that this concert is referenced as one of the most exciting nights in. Uh, show business mm. history because we want her to succeed we're all on that journey and and she's little she's dorothy gale always to us yeah we want to see people pull through their triumphs and i can't help but think of um icons and and, and artists and women of more recent history where um there's been similar paths and there's been not so similar paths i think of um, the last tour that Whitney Houston ever did, which um, from like, I think it was like 2009, 2010, um, and friends of mine went to see her in Manchester. And all I wanted to know was, could she could she do the note in I Will Always Love You? And they were like, well, well no, she couldn't. But we were all there for her anyway. And we were... We were there, like, carrying her and supporting her. And actually, I remember reading in the press from the UK how savage she was um, in Australia. There were, t- there were, you know, there were articles about people were just walking out of her concert in droves because it wasn't the voice that they'd paid to see. Of course it wasn't. It was after years of a really challenging, complex relationship with um, substance abuse. Um, but there were still people in those crowds for not just Whitney, but... Amy Winehouse, you know, the last the last few concerts of her life were as we're talking about, but people were there wanting her to pull through and to support her. Um, even Britney, you know, maybe not um, known for her vocals like the ladies we just discussed, but when you go and see Britney, you want her to to pull through, not just for a show, for your entertainment, because you want to see success. You want to see overcoming. You want to see um, the triumph that we've mentioned. So this trope has repeated itself time and time again and sadly will continue to do so because of the the nature of people with so much talent. Often it does go hand in hand with um, their demons and their enemies. Yeah, and I think there's an interesting um, observation you can make between the men and women of this era as well. I mean, if you compare... Judy Garland to say Frank Sinatra, who really didn't have to make much of an effort to wow audiences. Um, And certainly by the end of his career, he didn't, you know, remember any of his lyrics and didn't even really sing, to be honest. Um, Oh God, I'm going to get the Frank Sinatra fans knocking on my door. Yeah, my granddad's <laughs> dead, so he won't be coming for you, don't worry. Um, <laughs> watch out, watch out. Those Frank Sinatra stands are vicious. <laughs> but, you know, but the the women we love, they have to work so much harder. And I think Judy is a really fantastic example of that. A, a sad example as well, that um, even after the high of um, Carnegie Hall and the success of her... TV show a couple of years later, um, she didn't she didn't maintain that uh, popularity at all, um, and people kind of forgot her in the in the last you know five years of her life, um, which is it's it's heartbreaking because she still had so much talent and so much to give, um, but she just she was I think too weak to keep pushing like she had since you know age. 
four when she was, you know, performing on a vaudeville stage. Boys, we've gotten 50 minutes, 54 minutes through this oh, this recording. My gosh. And there's just so much to discuss. But I'd love to turn the conversation now to what are your favourite songs from this recording? And Alex, maybe we'll start with you because I'm sure... I'm sure you've got many, but if you had to pick just some highlights, what what would you um what would you go with? That is such a tough question, but I have the vinyl here. I'm looking at the song list, um, and I'm going to choose three. The first is hmm, the man that got away, um, because of what it represents. Um, a star is born. I'm not sure if you've seen. Um, the Judy Garland version of A Star Is Born. It is the best version, of course. Uh, <laughs> As someone who's seen only one, and I bet you can guess which one that is, I will say you are probably right. <laughs> <laughs> They've never quite lived up to the, the Judy Garland version. The Barbara Streisand version is just horrible. I wouldn't even, wouldn't even go there. Um, <laughs> but The Man That Got Away represents for me um, Judy Garland's artistry, not just as a performer, but as a collaborator, as a producer, as a writer. She really was the driving force of A Star Is Born. She was the one who wanted to do it. She chose the director. She cast the leads. She um, wrote a lot of it. She chose the song. She she chose the composers. It was really her her work and her baby. Um, and it is a terrific, terrific film. I implore anyone to to watch it. It's it's her best. And the fact that she lost the Oscar that year to Grace Kelly still makes my teeth hurt. I read a really sad anecdote about how as soon as they announced Grace Kelly's name, the cameramen who were with Judy where she was like in hospital or something and they were ready to record her acceptance speech, they were already packing up to leave Judy's room as Grace Kelly was walking from the audience up to the stage. And I just thought that is so heartbreakingly sad. Well, wouldn't you? That I'd be like, get out. I haven't won. (laughs) (laughs) But also it probably didn't happen. That's the beauty, right? of Judy Garland, that she creates these stories of tragedy that are hilarious. I, oh, she's fantastic. So my second song would have to be uh, Rockabye, Your Baby with a Dixie Melody, just for the, the build-up. I have no kind of story with this one, but where it starts and where it ends just knocks my socks off every single time. I listen to it. It's one of those numbers that I'm not expecting to... Oh, it just it just fills me up from head to toe. And I'm, I'm so, so happy whenever I listen to it. And that last note is just so delicious. And it's, it's interesting to me because it's a song that she really shouldn't be singing, right? It's, it's not her story to tell. She shouldn't be singing about Dixieland. Um, but it, it, it kind of makes me think of that comment you made about, you know, she could sing the phone book. She can really sing anything and give it the life and the love and the passion that only she can give it. I mean, it, it reminds me of um, one of my favourite performances of hers, which if you haven't watched it, you must. It's on YouTube. It's um, 
from the Judy Garland show, she sings Old Man River, and it will break your heart in two. It's a song that she shouldn't be singing, but it's just stunning. Um, and then, of course, I have to end with Over the Rainbow because it's a big fuck you to MGM. You know, it's her song, she owns it, and you can't, you cannot take that away from her. So those, those are my three. What about you, Drew? I want to give a shout out to two that I had never heard before, to my knowledge, and then one that I had heard before. So I really loved If Love Were All, which was, um, I think, written by Noel Coward, who, correct me if I'm wrong, Alex, was, he was a playwright, right? But he was gay as well, I think, I'm pretty sure. Massive queen, huge flaming queen. I also really loved the song, You Go To My Head. And I've written in my notes, I love you go to my head, despite the fact that she forgets the lyrics. But now I love it even more that I know that she was forgetting the lyrics on purpose. Um, Because that's one of them, like, there's a bit, I'm not going to try and attempt. Well, I always say I'm not going to try and attempt, and then I do try and attempt. But there's a bit where she, like, at the end, where it's like, you go to my head. And she just, she she actually really does hit that note to my (laughs) untrained ear. And it was really kind of like, just, yeah, raucous and kind of, um, in, in, incited something in me that just really excited me. And then, finally, I've got to give a shout-out to Come Rain or Come Shine. Forgive me for this, Alex, but I had never heard this song until um, it was performed as a lip... It was used as a lip-sync song on Drag Race All-Stars 4. I believe it's Monet Exchange versus Naomi Smalls. And I think it might be... It's the Manila the episode. It's the Manila it's the you just saw Manila Girl. It's the it's the Manila episode, and I remember it starting and thinking, "What the fuck? Like, how random?" And like, I've never heard the song, and like, I imagined that like I just thought like imagined both of those queens separately like rehearsing that song themselves, and just thinking it was so odd. But it's a perfect lip sync song. It's a perfect song because it's it's the, yeah, as you say, those bongos, that kind of, um, I mean. It's interesting that one of the reviews described that performance of at, at Carnegie Hall as um, as tribal because this is a real sort of like you know the 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 drums are beating you're you're feeling completely alive and enraptured with the song and her kind of like declaring this this love come rain or come shine and it's 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 a banger I it's a hard G banger a definite highlight for me. I was just going to say on Combrain or Shine, a shout out to previous guest of the pod, Ricardo, who actually starred in that episode of Drag Race and is also a massive Judy Garland fan himself. And the theme of that episode, because of the lip sync, was Best Judies. So many ties to that there. There were three uh, three um, instrumentalists that toured with um, Judy and the, the rest of the orchestra was made up by local talent. And one of them was the bongo player which is such a random <laughs> instrumentalist, but um, I have to give a shout out to uh, Mort Lindsay, who was her conductor and arranger. Um, and the, the, the work that he creates in this, uh, in this concert is just next. It's, it's just so beautiful. I mean, from that overture all the way through to the end, every single arrangement, just is wonderful. Um, you know, uh, sorry, I'm taking your turn, Andy, but I, I will let you talk. Um, the, you know, even 
songs like? I'm just looking at the the list again. Um, Almost Like Being in Love, which if you know Brigadoon, it's a sweet, gentle little... Alex, from... we don't know Brigadoon. <laughs> Shame on you. You should know Brigadoon. Well, this is oh. why you're here to school us. We want to be schooled. <laughs> Well, Brigadoon was written by the same guys who wrote My Fair Lady, which I'm sure you know. The the arrangements are terrific, and they're very surprising for Judy. Um, if you listen to her work kind of in earlier years, um, it was never this kind of sexy, jazzy, big band sound. It was very Hollywood, um, which is very lush, very string-heavy, um, and, you know, there's that beautiful moment that I think is so sexy and she talks about the um the 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 horn is it the horn player perhaps who moans someone moans you know and, and it starts I think putting on the ritz and it's just it's not we've never heard this sound um with Judy before and I think that is also monumental sorry Andy I cut you off <laughs> no that was beautiful and and um one of mine was Come Rain or Come Shine, so I'm glad that um, Drew gave that shout out. But my only other ones would be um, I Am That Melancholy Queen. And actually, I tried to, I tried listening to this album the other day while I was working and it wasn't sinking in. You know, my, I didn't really have much to take away from it because I was just so focused on my work. So today I made sure that I had a, I just went for a big long walk and just really focused on the music and just took it in. And it's a bit of a rainy kind of moody day here and it was perfect for the more melancholy songs on the second side of the album. Um, I Can't Give You Anything But Love, I just found so dreamy and almost kind of meditative as I was walking. It just kind of put me in a bit of a trance. Um, And also A Foggy Day, Um, similarly melancholy, Mimulus London and its greyness and how Judy was kind of... I love this relationship that Judy has with London. Like she talks about how... She loves, you know, the English love her and she loves London. But like, you know, we mentioned earlier in that um, we all know how cunty the British press apparently have been forever. Like this is not just the sun in the 90s. The British press have always been horrific. Um, But I love that kind of love-hate relationship she has with the UK. So there are my highlights. And shout out to my original love sing Wet the Strings of My Heart. Um, So definitely have a much richer deeper appreciation for this album than i did than listening to it all those years ago and um i hope you won't mind but while you were actually talking earlier alex about your songs you mentioned that you were reading the tracklist from a vinyl um and while you were talking i was listening but i was also on the internet and i've since ordered my own copy of the vinyl and that is on its way to me now and that is called my work here is done that's called living in the future (laughs) the only the only thing that the vinyl is missing. It's, it's, you must have it. I think it's a staple in every gay man's vinyl collection is that it doesn't have, it doesn't have the stories. It doesn't have the stage weights. It's just the songs. So, um, that, that, no, there's not. So I, I want every single person who hasn't listened to Carnegie Hall to listen to it in full. Don't skip to the next song. You've heard the, um, the, uh, over the rainbow <laughs> melody a million times, but it's worth it just for those. If I hear that bloody melody one more time, I swear to God. But it's worth it just for those moments of gold at the end where she she calls something out to the audience um, and, and the applause. You just have to listen to all of it. <laughs> 
You must. Absolutely. Um, Alex, I've got one more question for you that, um, Mm. because it made me laugh when it happened in the performance, but I've got no idea who this person is. Judy starts a song, and forgive me, I can't remember which one it is, but um, she references someone called Jeanette MacDonald. And it, yes. and it feels like she's changed the, what, what the lyrics should be to mention Jeanette. And I'm just wondering, who is Jeanette and why did the audience laugh? Oh, <laughs> I'm so glad you are. <laughs> um, I knew you'd have the answer. Jeanette MacDonald. So that, that song, San Francisco, was the only new song um, that, because Carnegie Hall was the last night on a tour that she was on, um, and they added San Francisco for that night. Um, and the, the pre-verse, the little intro would have been written specifically for, for that song. Um, and Jeanette MacDonald was a, I guess you'd say a peer of Judy Garland, um, slightly, slightly older, um, but she was an old black and white, um, movie star, um, who only sang very operatic, very dramatic, uh, songs. Um, and she was the antithesis of Judy Garland, essentially. So there's no real beef there between them. Um, but it's another example of Judy Garland making fun of her peers and making fun of, um, these people who seemed to be perfect. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor, Marlena Dietrich, Jeanette McDonald, they all have this in common. They're kind of untouchable. And then Judy comes out and she says, well, these women are, are ridiculous and they're silly and, you know, they're, they're not perfect, just like me. And I think that is so cool and so wonderful and camp, <laughs> you know? Mm. Boys, do you have, we're, we're going to have to wrap up soon. Is there anything left? I guess this one's specifically for you, Alex, but Andy, of course, if you have anything to add, then please do. Is there anything else in this conversation about Judy Garland that you'd like to mention or reference to to wrap things up? That I, I really don't think, I mean, there's so much more that I could say and talk about. I could talk about Judy until the cows come home. Um, but... I really, I would love the younger gays, and I'm talking as a 30-year-old now, I implore the younger generation to do some deep diving on YouTube and discover the magic that is Judy. Do some listening and get amongst it because she really is the mother of, you know, queer icons. Um, It all starts and ends with Judy, and if you're not aware of that and you're not part of that world, then you're just, you're not living. You're not living the true queer experience. You're only getting half the story. Exactly. Not even that. I tried to find, and maybe I just didn't look hard enough. I probably spent about a minute and a half searching. I tried to find this performance on YouTube, but it wasn't there. Is that right? I'm guessing it wasn't filmed maybe. Yeah, there's no, there's no official recording. There's some uh, kind of homemade uh, handicam or whatever. <laughs> they didn't have handicams back then, but um, recording. Um, but And it's just kind of been synced up with the, um, the, the sound recording. So no, no, nothing exists of this, which is sad, but also magical. Which, is even, which adds to the mythology even more, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. That's it. 
There was a piece um, in Esquire magazine, actually, in in a similar vein to what we discussed earlier with how disparaging, you know, these kind of white, straight male journalists of the time could be about both Judy and her fans. And um, on one hand, I resent giving the last word to this man, but I just think it's a really interesting summary of everything that we've discussed and the feelings that I get you know, from this icon who was the, the original, the very first icon, and what's changed um, and maybe what hasn't changed with the way that we view our icons now. He says, um, well, first of all, he disparages the game in attendance, dismisses them as fags who flip by chattering inanely. Um, but then he... Guilty! Yeah. <laughs> but he suggests that if homosexuals have an enemy, it is age. And he's writing this in 1961. And Garland is youth, perennially over the rainbow. Homosexuals tend to identify with suffering. They are a persecuted group, and they understand suffering. And so does Garland. She's been through the fire and lived. All the drinking and divorcing, all the pills and all the men, all the poundage come and gone. Brothers and sisters, she knows. And shout out to, you know, the homophobic insults. But also, I kind of agree. (laughs) And um, it's like a medal of (laughs) honour. Read me, Esquire journalist. Yeah, she knows. She knows. There's. I think that's why we love her so much because she gets it. And it's we're we're in on the joke. Yeah, that's that is some. Yeah, that's some arresting truth (laughs) that has just been spilled (laughs) in the good name of Judy. Alex, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart uh, for joining us this evening. As I mentioned earlier, we don't really know each other. I feel like now I can call you a good Judy of mine after this conversation. Oh, definitely. I am dying to see... Let us know when, obviously, lockdown is hopefully lifting soon. We want to know what's happening with your theatre company and when we can see the next performance. When, where can people find you and what have you got coming up next? Well, first off, thank you so much for having me. This has been such a wonderful time. I mean, no one has ever allowed me to talk about Judy for over an hour. (laughs) So I feel absolutely blessed. Um, You can find uh, Little Triangle on all the social media places. There's not much happening right now because um, of lockdown, but we will be back. We was supposed to have a fringe show happening um, called Isn't It Queer, which is a collection of Stephen Sondheim songs um, through a queer lens. Um, and we had to cancel our other Sondheim show, Anyone Can Whistle, which hopefully will come back next year um, as well. Sondheim coming soon to the pod, I reckon, Andy. Absolutely, bring it on. You absolutely have to have Sondheim. He is... He is a queer icon and... If people want to find you on social media, where can they find you? So my Instagram handle is Alexander, which is annoying to spell. It's Al, like the bird, and then Xander, X-A-N-D-E-R. That's probably the best place to find me, I'd say. I also have a website which showcases all of my um, directorial work. That's alexanderandrews.com.au. Work. We stan a theatre queen, especially in these times. It's not been easy for anyone working in theatre for the past 18 months, but hopefully the light is at the end of the tunnel. And yeah, 
Thank you so much for joining us, Alex. If if you would like to follow us, you can. We're at Oral Fixation Podcast on Instagram. You can email us. We're at oralfixationpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at oralfixpod, which is queer. We're on Facebook. We've got a website, oralfixationpodcast.com. But most importantly, as always, you got to rate, you got to subscribe, you got to review because it bumps us up and allows people to find us easier um so please do do that if you have a spare moment andy perhaps my best judy thank you so much after eight cycles i think maybe 70 episodes i think this might be our 70th episode if not our 71st i'm so glad that we finally covered judy and i just could not think of anyone better to have joined us for this conversation so once again alex huge Ding, 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 and clang, clang, clang. Too. Oh, you're both wonderful. Thank you. And took a seat. He said he hoped he hadn't stepped upon my feet. He asked my name. I held my breath. I couldn't speak because he's.